0: mythology podcast with Sean and David all right Sean we've made it to season one episode one I wanted to make we sure thank want to make sure I thanked everybody that's listening we've been up to 300 downloads and uh, and that's pretty cool we got we really would like to know who are the people internationally that are listening send us a thing on Twitter if you're in another if you're not in the United States I'm, I'm very interested to know what you think of our podcast anything else Sean you had
1: now we appreciate the listeners. I know you made a joke before we started recording about this being um, we us hitting three thousand <laughs> downloads. Or unfortunately, we have not gotten that far as of yet, but we have gotten to three hundred, which is still huge. So thank you, everyone.
0: Which for something like four, yeah, three or four episodes that we got almost a hundred for each or something that you know, averages out to. Um, yeah, we just do we just do this because we enjoy it. I did want to mention with it being season one. That we're, that we're not going to do ads, but if you do want to help support it, because we just have a little bit of fees for getting it hosted. If you go to our website, there's a donate button. And so it goes to a website called Ko-fi, which is basically it connects your PayPal to our PayPal. So you don't have to give us your PayPal name. We're not doing Patreon because they have like a 6% fee. PayPal business has a 3% fee. We thought about doing an OnlyFans, but we thought you probably wouldn't appreciate your man for your wife to find that on the credit card statement. So we didn't do OnlyFans, the, the Kofi site. And so my sister did, uh, thanks again to Emily. She sent us a donation uh, with the message. Uh, this is so you guys don't have to sell your body on the internet. So I appreciate that. And, um, and that's what you can you can put a little message if you send us, you know, send us a dollar, send us a message if you want us to read it on the air. I want Sean to do our the question of the week. So this comes from my mom. She's reading a book on Freya, apparently. She just, told, just texted me this. Sean, do you know... What source says that, that Freya has two cats that pulled the chariot?
1: Um, I do not know the source right no. offhand. I have yeah. heard of that. I have heard of the phrase Freya's cats, but I actually do not yeah. know the source.
0: No, we'll look at that. Um, that was just a stumpy on the spot, though. That's, we'll, we'll find out the answer for next time for my mom.
1: Thank you. Thank you. I
0: don't, I don't know if she's listening. I'm not sure if she's figured out uh, downloading the podcast yet, but uh, she knows. We're doing Hopefully
1: this. not, because I would have failed her. So, <laughs>
0: All right, John, let me, let me throw it over to you. With, uh, how are we starting?
1: Um, so I guess I'll talk about the drink of the week. So just to let our listeners know, I'm the stereotypical guy that goes into a bar and asks the bartender if they have any good IPAs on tap. So this is a local beer, double IPA. It's a brewery called Aslan Brewing, which is also located in Alexandria, Virginia, where I am located. And this is the Master of Karate double IPA. Like the It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia Dayman episode. So that is what I'm drinking. Here's no, the logo. If Here's I was, the was at can. the bar,
0: I would, I would have to order the master of karate. I couldn't know that it's a always sunny joke and pass that up.
1: Yeah. <laughs> as, so David, what are you drinking
0: this week? As, as usual, I'm drinking water. I, I was thinking, why, why am I always drinking water? Cause I have to keep this, uh, this train on the tracks, but. We need Sean to loosen up a little bit. and uh,
1: Get out of my comfort zone. Have a drink. Um, Yeah, Mm. so we can get into it. Last week, to close out season zero, we discussed the Aesir-Vanir war. The Aesir-Vanir war led us into two potential episodes. Um, One we're going to do next week, which is going to be on Mimir, specifically the well of Mimir and how Odin's running with Mimir at that well. This week, we are talking about the meat of poetry. So at the end of the Aesir and Vanir war, which resulted in a, a deadlock, signed a peace treaty to end the war. And part of the peace treaty resulted in an exchange of hostages, but it also resulted in them spitting into a vat. From the vat, a a person was formed, or a a god, I guess, a god named Kvasir. And he was like a symbol of the peace. And because he was created from the Aesir and Banir's spit, he was the personification or the god personification of Knowledge. He he knew everything, and eventually he goes on his own travels, and that's where the mita poetry picks up. The mita poetry is sort of a sequel to what we know of the Aesir and Vanir war. So in this episode, David's going to talk a little bit about a source that we have for the story of the Mita poetry from the Proseta. I'm going to talk a little bit about what a kenning is, and I'm going to talk about why a kenning may have been important to somebody in Scandinavia 1500 years ago. Then we're going to talk about the source from the poetic edda that sort of mentions the meat of poetry, and then we can talk about um you know your thoughts on that, David. so we can go ahead and pass it off to you. Tell us about Scal Scarpamol
0: well and the, and the one thing I was just thinking from what you just said and connecting it back to last week right the last week talked more about the war and the the hostage exchange, but then in the one story, Kvasir was actually just a guy who came from Vanaland or Vanaheim right and then you, mentioned, you actually mentioned this source last time, saying that they like very briefly just said there was an Aesir-Vanir war, but then it talks a lot about the afterwards, uh, which is the story we're telling now. So it's connecting the dots from where we were last week. So I'll read this version. It's, uh, again, like you said, from the, the Prosetta, Ska-Pamo.
1: Yeah. So the Prosetta, we've discussed a couple parts of it briefly in previous episodes. The first part of the Prosetta is called Gilfaganin. Um, the second part is called Skaldskapermal. So in the second part, Skaldskapermal is when we learn about the meat of poetry.
0: So this version, I, I, I'm reading it word for word, the parts that I really liked, that I think are important to get. And then I kind of wrote a little summary to connect the middle. So I'm not reading this whole big myth to you, but so I'll just want to explain that some of, the, some of it's my wording, but some of it's, it starts out, it's the direct words out of the, uh, the prose ed. So uh, Skaldskapermal, which I believe means the language of poetry. A man named Aegir who dwelt on an island and was well-versed in black magic visited Asgard. The Aesir welcomed him with courtesy, but did not trust him due to his deceitfulness and illusion magic. Aegir dined with the 12 gods and goddesses. He was seated next to Bragi, uh, the god of poetry. They drank and Bragi told him many things that have happened with the Aesir. Eventually Aegir asked, whence did this art, which ye called poetry, derive its beginnings? And Bragi answered, these were the beginnings thereof. The gods had a dispute with the folk, which are called Vanir. They appointed a peace meeting between them and established peace in this way. They each went to a vat and spat their spittle therein. Then at partaking, the gods took the peace token and would not let it perish, but shaped thereof a man. This man is called Kvasir. And he was so wise that none could question him concerning anything, but that he knew the solution he went up and down the earth to give instruction to men. And when he came upon invitation to the abode of certain dwarves, Fialar and Galar, they called him into a privy converse with them and killed him, letting his blood run into two vats and a kettle. The kettle was named Oderir, and the vats son and Boden. They blended honey with the blood and the outcome was the mead by the virtue of which he who drinks becomes a scald or scholar. The dwarves reported to the Aesir that Kvasir had choked on his own shrewdness, since there was no, none so wise there as to be able to question his wisdom. And then Bragi, the god of poetry, goes on to describe a convoluted path that the Mead took, exchanging hands several times in tragic ways. Uh, first, this, those two dwarves, they invited the giant, who is called Gillinger, to visit him. They rode out to sea with him and capsized the boat, as they knew that he was unable to swim, and he perished. The dwarves returned to shore and they told his wife what had happened. They tired of her weeping and devised a plot where they asked her to stand where she could see the location in the sea where her husband perished. And then they dropped a millstone on her head because they were tired of hearing her weeping. When the giant Suttinger, who was Gillinger's son, learned of this, he went over and took the dwarves and carried them out to sea and set them on a reef, which he knew would be covered at high tide. The dwarves begged for their lives, and Suttinger accepted the mead as reconciliation. Suttinger carried the mead home and concealed it in a place called Hintborg, placing his daughter Gunlod to watch over it. Because of this, we call Kvasir's blood or dwarves' drink or fairy boat of the dwarves, since this mead brought them life. Aegir asked Bragi, So then, how did the Aesir come to have possession of Suttinger's mead? And then Bragi told the story of how Odin learned the location of the mead he tricked nine peasants into accidentally beheading each other with their scythes as they were working in the field belonging to Boggi, who is Suttinger's brother. Odin then disguised himself as a worker and offered to complete the work of nine men in exchange for one drink of Suttinger's meat. Boggi said he does not have control of the meat, but if Odin completes the work, he would go with Odin to ask his brother. Suttinger refused his brother's request, and then Odin talked to Boggi into betraying his brother. Boggi drilled a hole through the mountain where Gunlad guarded the mead. Odin turned into a serpent and entered the mountain, although Boggi tried to kill him before he could escape. Odin proceeded to the place where Gunlad was and lay with her three nights. And then she gave him leave to drink three draughts of the mead. In the first draft, he drank every drop out of Odorir. In the second, he emptied Bodin and in the third, Son. Then he turned himself into the shape of an eagle and flew as furiously as he could. But when Suttinger saw the eagle's flight, he too assumed the fashion of an eagle and flew after him. When the Aesir saw Odin flying, they set out their vats in the court. And when Odin came into Asgard, he spat up the mead into the vats. He came so near to being caught by Suttinger that some of the mead fell to Midgard, to those men who possessed the ability to compose poetry. Therefore, we call poetry Odin's booty and the drink of the Aesir. All right, John, how did I do?
1: You did great. Thanks, I stumbled David. just once or twice. Not bad. <laughs> yeah, it's all good. We can edit that out. Cool. So there's a few things to note. Uh, one, you get to see Odin in action. This starts the story of Odin and his lust for knowledge. He figures out the location of this mead, and he wants it for himself because it is the mead of poetry. So he does what he does, and he gets involved in the affairs of other people, in this case, a bunch of giants. He seduces Sating- Satinger's daughter, Gunlag sleeps over three nights to get three drinks of the mead, and then he leaves. And he also screws over uh, Boggy and Sutung in the process of doing so. Keep in mind, Sutung got this mead because these two dwarves killed his parents. Also, this has two mentions of dwarves. We mentioned dwarves in our episode about the Nine Worlds. We talked a little bit about how elves or dwarves may be looked at as lesser beings and in this case, the dwarves were pieces of garbage. They killed Kvasir for the sake of creating this mead. So they had something like a powerful artifact that they could drink from. They randomly kill a giant and this giant's wife. And then they only give the mead up because their son, Sitzinger, got the mead from them and said, I'm going to kill you if you don't if give me the mead. That's the only way I'm going to let you live. So I find, I find all of this pretty interesting. It's still relatively early in the story if you look at Norse mythology as like a chronological order.
0: Did, but did any you, other um, sources give you more detail on why they wanted to kill Kvasir or why they did?
1: My guess is that they knew who Kvasir was. They knew that he was the offspring of the Spitz of the Aesir yeah. and the Vanir. I don't think that any of the sources go into the specifics of why they yeah. wanted to kill Kvasir. They they were opportunists.
0: And that they were prepared to collect his blood and make it into a magic potion, right? And and then maybe knowing what we know about dark elves and dwarves, maybe that they resented how good he was,
1: right? Maybe, yeah, they and they wanted what he had. They right. they knew that this was like a gift. And this goes for like Norse mythology and what the Scandinavians may have believed. But the ability to create art with words seemed to have been a big deal, which is ultimately why Snorri Starlson wrote the Pro set in the first place. So they, they seek Vasir, Vassir, they kill him, and they use his blood to create the meat of poetry, which ultimately is an artifact in itself, which Odin wants, because Odin has a lust for knowledge. And Odin goes into his whole thing of fucking over other people, or other gods, or giants in this case, to get what he wants so he can gain that wisdom that we've discussed in previous episodes. In this case, the wisdom is understanding how to convey poetry verbally. I thought this, I think it's like a very interesting story. It is one of the longer ones and it sort of has two parts, right? Like Kvasir dies at the hands of these dwarves. The dwarves eventually get caught to the point where the mead transitions into the the hands of this family of giants and Odin, you know, through trickery or treachery gets in there, seduces a, a giantess to get a drink of the mead flies out. And then on the way to Asgard, some of it drops out. I think of his butt. <laughs> onto I, think, I think it's
0: that he's, he's carrying it all in his mouth. He's collected everything in his mouth. And then when he oh, um, he's trying to spit it into the vats, some of it falls to earth. And he's trying to evade this other eagle catching him so that he uh, can't be bothered to go back and collect it. He just yeah, lets it go to the humans.
1: And so if you're a traveling bard or seer or, seer or something, Traveling on Midgard, you can go to a village and say, Oh, well, I found some of uh, Odin's spittle.
0: You clear, and they, <laughs> right, so it's a good compliment to give your favorite a bard that clearly you've drank of the, uh, the meat of Kvasir because you're great at poetry. Exactly.
1: And so, one thing that I sort of want to do to transition from the story of the meat of poetry is introduce what I know about Kennings. So, when Snorri Sturluson wrote the prosetta, he did it to try to kind of convey a dying type of poetry to the aristocracy of the Norwegian kings. It was a situation where like, like scaldic poetry and etic poetry that were popular hundreds of years prior were losing value. Keep in mind in the two in the 1200s when Snorri lived, the Norwegian kings were in a time where writing was more so widespread. So poetry may have just come from actual writing as opposed to this like verbal verse,
0: with the ones when the Christians came, right the, the monks and the, the priests that wrote, and this is all throughout right, medieval Europe, they were the, the learned people, right probably the most educated people, the people who spent the most time in any kind of formal school were the priests, the monks, right who, who wrote. And then it's interesting that the scalds I'm not sure how exactly they translated this, but they also connected scalds with scholars, right So the, the poets were also the scholars of this pre-Christian time were the record keepers, right? In their mind, they kept all the stories that are the books and books of history other cultures would have, right? So that kind of goes to that tradition, right? is being replaced by priests and the Christian Bible and all of this is happening.
1: That's absolutely right. Snorri looked at this opportunity to kind of explain old poetry. um, And like one of the parts of old poetry was Kennings. And the best way to use Kennings was to use them how they used to be Actually, conveyed, and that's by describing like the stories of the Norse gods. And so, I, I went had to go online for this. But a Kenning, the definition that came up when I googled it is a compound expression in Old English and Old Norse poetry with a metaphorical meaning in the prosetta at the last part of Skald Skaparmal. Actually, Story explains the definition of a Kenning, and then he uses the conversation that we've um, expressed previously with Bragi and Aegir to continue that conversation where Aegir asks, well, what do you call Thor? Well, what do you call the moon? Like, what do you call this? And then Bragi answers in Kennings saying, well, you call Thor Odin's son, you know? And so if you look at Odin's son, that's a very simple one to explain Thor. That's a very simple Kenning to explain Thor but it allows more world-building from us reading the Prosetta in general. So
0: I- Some of them are hard to figure out, right? Like why is you're drinking mead, right? You order you order a mead and they say, oh, here is your uh, your Dwarves Ransom, right? And then if you're from somewhere else, why why do they call it Dwarves Ransom? Oh, well, if you know the story from Skald Skopramal, you know.
1: Yeah. And if you don't know it, you would probably ask. Sure. And that allows you to learn something, you know, something that you don't like. Maybe in this case, you'll learn a little bit about the Mead of Poetry, so in the Mead of Poetry, which you did read from Skald Skoppermal, and you mentioned some Kennings as well as you read it, they refer to poetry as Odin's catch because he caught the Mead of Poetry from the giantess Gunnlaug and he stole it from her and her father Sutung. They also call poetry the drink of the Aesir because it belongs to the Aesir now. They call it and the Mead. So the Mead of Poetry, they call it Kvasir's blood. So if you were to like hear about poet or like in this case, meat, as you mentioned, and somebody said, Oh, well, here's cavassier's blood. Oh, why? Well, I don't know what that is. Tell me what that is. And once you understand what cavassier's blood means, you can sort of say, Oh, wow, this is a drink. I know what meat is. It's an alcoholic beverage made of honey that I, I enjoy, but now I know that the origin of it is very bloody. <laughs> it's it's bloody or it's bloody because cavassier was, brutally murdered right. by these dwarves to create this mead. So I am drinking Kvasir's blood, you know? And then it
0: all makes a lot of sense, right? That mead is the the blood of poetry and you get drunk and you're a little better at writing poetry, right? That's it. it you can, you can kind of intuit it once you know some of the words, right? Without knowing <laughs> the whole story, but it helps it a lot if you know the story, right? And one of my other thoughts was that this is all written in old Norse, right? So whatever the word was for Kvasir's blood for dwarves ransom, right? Like they're... Not exactly the way we look at the words right now, right? But so this was something, again, I should keep a list with some of my sources, but it was that one I mentioned last time, the, uh, it's a little more of a historical book. It's a good reference book that gives you like, you can look through the index at every uh, god and deity mentioned, you know, or a demigod mentioned, and see what actual source they come from. I'll put it in the show notes because I can't remember it right now. That the, he talked a little bit about Kennings being that like, it was part of their language, almost like their, their idioms, right? Like, like words and phrases that just don't quite translate. I should have prepared more on this because I'm trying to think of examples from English that outside of English, it just wouldn't make sense, right? That's kind of like things like the grass is always greener, right? Like, unless someone explains that to you and, you know, you speak a different language than English, like someone has to break that down for you, right? But yeah, there's a
1: lot of assumptions yeah. involved yeah. if you're like explaining a, ken- a kenning to somebody.
0: Right. But but the idea is that the in the Norse language, the kennings were just used, right? They were the way you used, the way you talked about this, the way you talked about, you said earlier... Um, that gold is Sif's hair, right? So someone might be like, yeah, this crown made of Sif's hair, right? And people just said that like it was a normal thing to say unless if you weren't from that culture, right? If you weren't of that society who had these stories and had this history. To me, that goes to another reason why it's not just why you wanna understand the old stories to understand poetry, but maybe even actually to understand their language, you needed to keep the stories alive, right? Another reason why Snorri is uh, trying to do it accurately, right, because if you lose one of these stories, but it's still an expression Then everybody's like, why do you call it? What was it? Odin's spittle <laughs> or something
1: like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Odin's catch, drink yeah. of the Aesir, Kvassir's blood, yeah. intoxication of the dwarves. It's pretty cool. Is it, like We would say, oh, well, what did Odin catch if we didn't know yeah. the background of the meat of poetry, which is something that poets would probably, they would probably explain the story of the meat of poetry, but then they would also kind of sum it up, say, but Odin's catch still lives to this day and I had a glass last night or something like that.
0: Was there anything else?
1: Yeah. I also There was a couple of other, other kennings that I, I looked up in the Prosetta and then I also did like an external search to find that modern day kennings were also a thing. So in the Prosetta, you also hear that Mead is called the Ship of the Dwarves, which is interesting because the dwarves were out to sea um, Sutung was going to like just drown them there. He was going to keep them there, but giving up the mead allowed them passage home. Sutung allowed them to come home at that, like at that point, the mead, them offering up the mead was their ship home. Um, at the end of *Scout's Caber* when Snorri describes what a kenning is, he goes over some other examples with the guides, and I, I wrote down a select few, um, like "sky is Ymir's head," "the sea is called the blood of Ymir." Yes, gold, as you mentioned, hair of sif. So in my external search of modern day Kennings, one of them is a couch potato. So if you take two words, and this is like also part of the Kennings, if you take the word couch and the word potato, they're not supposed to go together. But if you look at somebody and says that fucker is lazy, that person's a couch potato. Like we all know there's the assumption that if somebody's saying that to us, we know what they mean. We, the, we know what they mean.
0: The first time you heard it, somebody had to explain it, right? When you were like four years old and somebody said they're a couch potato, you, you might get it, but you might have to ask, right?
1: You might get it. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing. You may get it because if you like think think about it, well, you have a couch, you have a potato, which can be considered a round food. Right. So like if if you're, maybe it's like a fat person, if a fat person that's sitting on a couch all day could be lazy. And like I don't want to make generalizations. Well, it scary. sounds like one of my
0: grandma's sayings, like if you keep eating all those, you know, potato chips, you're gonna turn into a potato, right? And so that's yeah. <laughs> sitting on the couch eating potato chips, watching TV. There you go.
1: <laughs> exactly. Another one is homewrecker. Um, so if you take the words home and "wrecker," you're like, oh, it's a bull, it must be a bulldozer. No, right. it's, yeah. it's somebody that is ruining a marriage because they're sleeping with one of the spouses or something like that. So
0: they, they metaphorically wreck the home. They're not actually the bulldozer, but that goes, if you speak a different language, you put those two pieces together, you're like, oh, she's a bulldozer. What?
1: Yeah. So I think this is very cool. Cause I like to put myself in a place 1500 years ago where somebody like, let's say there's a traveling bard or seer, seer, or telling a story they're making an assumption if they say a kenning and if somebody like says no I don't know what that means great well let me tell you about the meat of poetry
0: yeah and you just got you a bunch what? of them knocked out of the way just by you know a few stories right
1: one last thing I thought of you know if you're studying for a test you know you may may use like mnemonics to study for that test you may like like when I was taking a business law class um, for my masters I would say oh well, here's a court case how am I gonna remember the name of this court case but also what happens so I would like think about the crime being committed and I would like think about one the, the perpetrator actually repeating the name of the court case or something like this. And yeah, so they actually
0: say that's how you memorize a deck of cards. You create a house in your head that has 52 rooms and then you put different things in each of them or something like that. I, I haven't done it, but yeah. So this idea? is
1: a stretch. I don't necessarily think that this is like why Kennings existed back in the day, but I do, I do find it very interesting that this could be a, Device used to convey something, as opposed to just using the word that the word is supposed to be.
0: I I think accurately, it goes back to that idea of how could they remember, you know, all these books worth of knowledge in their mind, right? What are they doing to do that? Kenning's probably play a role, right? I can't explain the neurology of that either, but I I think you're probably right.
1: If only we had a friend that was an English major, we could ask him to some point. I bet
0: bet the English language has things like we get from Shakespeare, right? That if you don't understand Shakespeare, you don't get it. But uh, we'll leave that for. An English major to explain to us.
1: Yeah. yeah, definitely. Last thing I promise on Kennings, I talked to my coworker today about this, this episode that we were recording tonight. And I was trying to practice explaining what a Kenning was. She said, Oh, well, my, my son came up with a few of them or a couple of them. So one of them is fire dust is ash.
0: Okay. Now you, you put the, wait, is that a match? So ash, ash, yeah. like the dust left after ash, from fire.
1: Yeah. The the Kenning for Ash would be fire dust. And the other one, I will say what the phrase is and you can guess what the actual word is. A butt chuckle.
0: A butt chuckle?
1: A butt chuckle.
0: Chuckle. That's a fart. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's a fart. So I just thought it was funny (laughs) because those are the two examples. And in researching Kennings, like I watched some YouTube videos, explain like I'm five explanations of what it is, but like they actually are like created by five year olds. Right, right. Um, so I find it interesting because like, we're like, we're in our thirties. Um, we are set in our ways with how we speak, yeah. but I feel like if you asked a five-year-old to create a Kenning, they would do a better job than at least yeah. I would.
0: Well, and then it goes to, right. You, right. I think probably a lot of people with families can relate to this. Right. And then it's everyone who's in the family gets it. You're outside of the family. You don't get it. And then when you get it, you're a little bit included in the family. Right. So it's very much a powerful, uh, cultural, mm-hmm. culture building. Yeah. So one of the other interesting things, things about. Kvassier, as I this is actually sort of an accidental thing I came upon as I was looking up his name, that Kvass is a very weak beer in Russia, which is interesting. But then I also looked up more and actually it's also a very strong beer in Germany. So I don't know what that means there. The German one actually has higher alcohol percentage. The Russian one is just like one or two percent. It said it's a thing you'll let your kids drink, but that might be causing problems that you let them drink a 1% alcohol drink. But, um,
1: or in Russia, if it's not vodka, it's not worth drinking. It's too yeah. weak, you know.
0: <laughs> right, the beer, yeah, the beer isn't serious. You should be drinking vodka. But I thought that especially stood out to me when we talked about how the that idea from Sturlson that the vanier <laughs> came from Russia. Real,
1: real yeah. quick, I think this is the second straight episode where I've attacked Russia. Or I made something. I made fun of Russians.
0: Let's see if we can do something beneficial for the Russians so they like us, because we don't want any yeah. Russian sorcerers holding things against us. Yeah. But so that, but I like that idea that the, that Kvas was beer in Russia, right? And then it was this idea that Kvasir was the man of wisdom who actually came with the Vanir, that came with the the Russians to meet the, the Aesir, right? So one of the other things I knew about this, um, I, I read it in a book, but I knew this, you know, about the, the mythology and the story with uh, the creation of the god Kvasir. That idea that people spitting into a pot and then it forming something. I already, I knew something about that from a book I had read back when I was living in Colorado, doing a lot of home brewing. I had this book called the, uh, the sacred and herbal healing beers. And I was trying to figure out how to recreate this early American beer that was based on used pine needles instead of hops. Cause you know, like a recipe from Thomas Jefferson that he didn't have hops. So he used pine needles. I'm trying to figure out how do I recreate that oh, beer, So I'm looking at herbal beers. But they mentioned this one that I think it was from Mexico, certainly it was Central America, where it was made out of corn. So so now a good thing to know about beer is that you need sprouted barley. We're going to go into some, I'm not going to do psychology as much today, do the biology, chemistry with brewing, that when you're making beer, you need sprouted barley because there's these enzymes that are activated when the barley sprouts. So now that seed barley can take the starches in the seed, turn them into sugar, which the plant needs to grow. For whatever reason, sprouted barley has a lot more of that enzyme than sprouted wheat or sprouted corn or anything else. That's why you want to have a lot of barley in your beer. That's not all going to be sprouted barley. And then you can mix in some wheat, but you put too much wheat and then you got too much starch, not enough uh, sugar, right? But you need that enzyme to break down the starches when you're brewing it, because then the sugars are available for the yeast to turn it into alcohol, right? So it's these these steps that have to happen. But so let's say you do just have corn. You don't have any sprouted barley. How do you break down the starch into the sugar? right? One of the things that we actually did this in chemistry class, and someone will have to remind me which teacher we had was you spit in a tube and you put some kind of a starch in there and you shake it up. And then you would get the test strips, like for your sugar levels for diabetes. And then you would say, Hey, it was before you spit in there, there was no sugar. You spit into it, you shook it up. And now you have there's sugar measuring in there, right? It's Because you have amylase enzyme in your mouth, right? Well, you could make beer that way.
1: This is yeah. very fascinating to me. <laughs> it's a weird,
0: it's a weird idea. And I remember, and so clearly it was a good example. we got to give compliments to this teacher. we got to get the message back to them that it stuck with me all these years later. How do you, what does your amylase do the enzyme in your spit? breaks the starch down to sugar even before it makes it to your stomach, right? So if you want to make a beer, you don't have any of the enzyme out of sprouted barley. What do you do? You chew it up and you spit it into a bucket and then you chew it up again. You spit it in a bucket. You got all this amylase from your spit in a bucket with a bunch of chewed up potatoes or corn. Now the yeast can use that sugar and make a beer, right? So that's the idea is there's actually this Mexican beer. It's an old tradition where I think traditionally the, the old women or the women you know would be sitting there so you'd have grandma sitting there chewing up the corn, spitting it in a bucket, right? And all the all the moms and the and the women of the village are chewing up the corn, spit it in the bucket, just like Kavasir, right? The gods spit in the bucket. They keep it alive for a while. You let it ferment in a bucket, and then you strain it and you strain off this liquid, and it'll make you speak poetry, right? So that's actually a thing. <laughs>
1: And we'll turn into a body.
0: <laughs> yeah. So that, like, the the gods are doing this, right? So I'm wondering, was there some tradition from the Russians, like chewing up potatoes and making kvasir, right? I I have no idea, but uh, I hope I'll so. I'll say yes. I'll say yes because I'm guessing. Was there anything else I was going to say, Sean? I, yeah, I get sidetracked by my fun story.
1: No, that that is very fun. I think next time I'm uh, I go to the Annapolis uh, Renaissance Festival and I'm there in my stupid little tunic, ordering a uh, like a meat or something. I'm gonna yeah. be like, you didn't spit in this, did you? And then. The guy's gonna be like, "Fuck off! Just get out of here!" <laughs>
0: like he doesn't—he doesn't understand your kenning, right? If he got your kenning, he'd be like, Oh, that's a good one. You're a god. You're a god who spits in my drinks." And
1: <laughs> yeah, I'll just go. I will like ask for, "Hey, can I get a pint of Cavassier's blood?" And like, there's gonna be five people working there. Be like, "This guy's an idiot." And then one, no. person's one person, one be it. Like, yeah, I got it, man. I got it. Kind of Don't guy. worry.
0: It also adds more meaning to like nobody. Nobody makes this beer like Grandma makes it, right? That's...
1: Because she spits in it. Lovely. Thanks, David. I don't know how that makes the Russians look good, but it's a pretty smart thing we'll to do on. if you don't have if you don't have
0: sprouted barley and you want to make alcohol. It's a pretty interesting thing to figure it out.
1: Awesome. Before we move on from the Proseta, I had something else that I, I noticed in in researching. So, and by the way, the meat of poetry is a sequel to the Aesir-Vanir War, which if you look at what, what like the Norse timeline is supposed to look like, the Aesir-Vanir War and thus the Meta poetry is supposed to take place relatively early. So if you think of the Norse timeline, the beginning is the, beginning. It's the creation myth and the end of it is Ragnarok. One of the last events before Ragnarok is when, let's say, Loki loses favor with the Aesir and he's on the run from them. The Aesir are after them. Loki disguises himself as a fish, a salmon, jumps into this water to escape the Aesir who are closing in on him. They're about to get him. And we're going to discuss this in our um, series on Loki. But I just wanted to mention this here because when the Aesir gets to the water, they don't know where Loki is. They have a feeling that he may have jumped into the water. And then one of the Aesir finds the ability to create a net, a fish net. Which they use to catch, capture Loki. The Aesir in this story, or the, the god in this story, is Kvasir. So keep in mind, Kvasir died in the meat of poetry, which is supposed to take place at the beginning, but he's there at the end, like near Ragnarok. And I just found this part very interesting because I know we mentioned previously in a previous episode where, like, the timeline, which may be important to us in the 21st century, like, we want to understand like, what the actual timeline is. Of the MCU, we want to know like the timeline for anything. The Marvel it, Universe
0: for anyone who doesn't get your uh, your acronym.
1: Oh, sorry. The, yeah, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I hope they understand what that is because Thor is a big part, and I'm sure we're gonna have an episode. But yeah, so we just have this um, we we have this like desire to understand everything about a topic in this case the MCU or or like Norse mythology. Whereas back then they may have just been focusing on the stories themselves. In this story, Kavasir dies, but the result of that was the creation of poetry, which became which which came to be in the hands of the Aesir and parts of it dripped onto earth. So poetry poetry is here because it is the blood of Kvasir. Kvasir died at the hands of these two dwarves. In this other story, he's got the most wisdom of all. And so he's the one that can craft a net to capture Loki. So there are two separate stories. And it's like, it requires you to understand the story of Kvasir. Yeah, it tells you that back then they probably did not care about timeline. I guess.
0: Well, certainly they were they were written out of order, right? They would have been written two different stories, two different places. No one was really trying to make them all fit into one coherent book until Sturlson did it, right? And for him to make the story entirely consistent is like you know uh, Neil Gammon, Gammon, and some of these other authors. They'll they'll try to make a consistent story, right? But they lose all the fine detail that me and Sean like to to spend so much time in because they want it. To be one story that makes sense. The, the real story doesn't make sense. I think that's kind of what Sean's saying.
1: Yeah. But like, it's funny because like Snorri did try to do that. He tried to like kind of tell a story about all of the Norse world, but he even fails like right there, right? He says like at the beginning, like there was the creation. Then like early on, there was an Aesir vanir war. Kvasir was created at their peace council um, from the spit. But then like later towards the beginning of Ragnarok, he's alive and he's the one that crafts this net to catch Loki. The example, the modern day example that I used, uh, well, there's two of them. The modern day examples I, I like thought of when I thought of this, the Zelda universe. If you look at the games, these are amazing games created, you know, 35 years ago, starting like 20 or so years ago, the fandom of the Zelda, <laughs> of the Zelda video games were like demanding to know what the timeline was. Cause they found like, based on clues, it wasn't like, oh, here's a game. The next game takes place after it. The next game takes place after that. They were demanding this timeline. The creators like eventually put out a timeline and they, they claim the timeline was there altogether and it probably was, but they were also like, well, the important thing is that you enjoy the game and that's, there's a good story. So I think it goes back
0: to that idea. I talked before about the logos versus the mythos, right? Because for the Christian Bible, people want it to make sense happening the, the biblical literalism, right? It had to happen that way in that order, right? And that's actually my mind went here, so I'll go there, right? Actually, my, yeah, um, the preacher from my childhood church, he did, I, I saw one of his video sermons recently, uh, somewhere in the last year. He talked about how in Genesis, there are two different stories. If you read it kind of uncarefully, it seems like it's one story. But if you actually spend a lot of time analyzing what's going on, you realize the two stories aren't consistent with each other. They can't have both happened, right? So either they're metaphorical. Or there is some kind of mental gymnastics you have to do, right? So, can you find the truth in each of them and not say that this one says this and this one says that they're not consistent, therefore it's all, you know, burn the book, it's worthless, right? Like, you you don't have to say that. You can think flexibly and see them both at the same time, but it's, I think, going back a little bit more to that logos, or sorry, the the mythos idea, right? We're looking at a myth. And when I say myths, I don't mean it's not true. I mean, it's uh, the stories that build our culture, right? But it's not logical. And you're applying your logic mind saying, well, Zelda has to be in this way, right? And with the Bible, this had to happen first and that had to happen. I'm reading a book on the Gnostic Gospels, right? And it's like, well, this one doesn't fit because we, we're we reading a story. We made a nice story that works in a timeline, but this one interrupts it. We need to throw it out, right? We can't have it there. Or you can think, you can try to make sense out of both of them at the same time, right? And that's kind of like Odin, that he's such a contradictory figure in all these different ways. Mm-hmm. I don't know, that's where I'm on a tangent no, right that's,
1: now. <laughs> that's exactly it. Look at the Zelda universe there's so many people that I was one of these people as well. Like I would say, well, I need to know where this game fits in the timeline. Whereas I should have said, you know what? Fuck it. I don't care. Majora's mask was an amazing game. Like, don't, it's don't like, think like, about enjoyed, it
0: too much. Right. I think that's probably part of your, your message.
1: Yeah. But like in the plot of Majora's mask, you're like this doesn't make any sense in the timeline until like you knew, you knew what the timeline was, but like, it's the story that mattered. So I just found this interesting because I've read the pro setup before, but like in reviewing it for this podcast, I'm like, wait, Kvasir was right there. It's very cool to kind of go through this and see that there's a lot of contradictions. At the end of the day, the story's still there. Kvasir was a god, I guess a mix of the Aesir and the Vanir, and he had two parts to play in general, in two different stories that may not have had to been in in a timeline.
0: Your logic, right. Your logic, your attempt to put logic on it is not it's not making sense timeline-wise, right? Yeah. But mythologically, it does make sense because he would be the one who's smart enough to figure out what Loki was up to, right? Would it be helpful for me to talk about the, uh, that idea, Carl Jung and archetypes right now? Because just as you mentioned, James Bond, actually, I have a complete connection. I'll loop it back around to James Bond if you want me to go for it. So I talked before about Sigmund Freud, right? I'm not going to go into everything about the history of Carl Jung, but I, I started telling you about it, Sean, that he is, he was a, a student essentially of, of Freud. He, he was, you know, a student first who was interested in this, you know, psychology, the mind, uh, psychoanalysis, right? He's a, I believe a medical doctor, but training to be a psychiatrist when it was a very new idea to be a psychiatrist. So he was a student under Freud and he got to a point where then he didn't agree with some of Freud's theories. To very, give very quick summary is that Freud said basically everything going on in our unconscious is repressed sexual energy. And he, and he says, this uh, starts with, he has
1: sexual frustration.
0: Well, he's well-known for the, the oral stage, the anal stage, the phallic stage, and then the sexual stage. And so people use these terms regularly, oral fixation, right? Anal retentive, right? That you've got interrupted when you were in your oral stages for a baby, all you're about your source of like the life instinct and the death instinct, right? The life instinct as an infant is you just feed, right? And that's the source of everything you need to do and a source of pleasure and everything like that, right? Then you get to be, you're going to preschool, you need to learn how to keep your poops in, right? So that's anal retentive. You need to retain some Mm -hmm. of that. You can't just be going everywhere because we say you need to go to preschool. And then you get to feel really proud about yourself, right? Daddy, I did a good job. I didn't poop my pants today, right? And great job, kid. That's the most important thing in your life right now is don't poop your pants in school because then you can keep going to school, right? Sounds very silly, but it's completely accurate. I,
1: think. I feel like we've mentioned things coming out of somebody's butt three times this episode, and I didn't expect this, but I think this works. So
0: <laughs> that is called Young's idea of synchronicity. And so I didn't know why you said that the uh, mead came out of the bird's butt before. But... I, I
1: thought I read it, but I guess I was wrong.
0: <laughs> but it all loops It all loops back. And, and then the other ones, basically, uh, we said it's an explicit show, right? So the, the genital stage is when kids start playing with themselves because they are discovering that's a thing they can do. And then hopefully that transitions into being interested in in their genitals and then you reproduce and that's what your life instinct says you need to do, right? So first you just need to eat, then you need to not poop your pants and then you need to reproduce, right? These are, this is Freud's idea, right? And Freud's idea is if you don't, um, because we can't talk about these things in our culture, right? Me and Sean are laughing about it right now. So you have to repress those ideas, right? You're not, you know, um, you got really good at holding in not pooping your pants but now you're doing it too much, right? And as a child, that maybe you get constipated because you're just like, I'm really good at holding it in. I'm never going to let it out, right? And you make yourself constipated, but then you become an adult who is constantly holding in these urges because it's an urge you need to poop, right? But you are holding in all these other urges. You overlearned how to hold in your urges. And that's the person who's, they say is anal retentive, but they're always making sure their hair is just perfect and they're always dressed. Everything's pressed exactly perfect. And we say they're anal retentive. And this all comes from Freud, right? So that's, that's his theory. Jung said the unconscious is a lot more interesting than that. It's not just repressing the sexual aspects you're not allowed, you know, you don't want to admit to. Your unconscious has all of these things, everything that you get from your culture. So his idea is the, the collective unconscious is that there's an aspect of our unconscious mind that maybe everybody shares. Certainly people within our culture, we all have the same stories. We, we're, we learn them and then they're part of our unconscious. Maybe some of it has even evolved as we learned, we were, you know, we're apes and living in forests and the mm-hmm. darkness is scary and dangerous. And you want to you know, start to become men and humans near a campfire is safer, right? All these ideas that are then we create stories about why you don't go out in the dark and you stay near the campfire. And we spent enough time doing that. Maybe it evolved into our brain, right? Yeah. One of Young's theories is on archetypes. So an archetype is kind of an ideal, right? Like Jesus Christ is an archetype. I might've said this in season zero somewhere because he's perfect. He's sort of the perfect uh, human, right? And he's, he's more perfect than we can be, right? It's great for us to aspire to be like him, but if you are constantly sacrificing yourself to that extreme of a martyrdom kind of degree, you won't be existing for long. You'll martyr yourself, right? So it's not adaptive to reproducing the species or living a life, but there's something useful in that message, the archetype of the the perfect sacrifice, right? there's yeah. you know the other just to do quickly some of young's early archetypes were um the shadow i like the shadow the way i like this way of describing it is what's the worst thing that you're capable of and the worst thing that you're capable of is the same thing the worst thing that i'm capable of. if you really go there if you really think about it right if you were really pushed to something it's actually the same for all of us right but it's only if we were pushed there That's the concept right we talked i think last episode about the animus is the animus is kind of the critical father figure. The anima is the idea, and a man is the repressed maternal instinct, right? So when you have a child and then you start feeling all the emotions and you hold them and comfort them, you're getting in touch with the anima. Before that, you're yeah. a very tough man and you never cry, right? Things like that. Right? Then it's repressed, but then you get in touch with that shadow. It's kind of the part you don't want to quite admit, but it's inside of you somewhere. Any other ones besides? And then the the true self would be kind of the idea. What is what is even meant by your true self, the best version of yourself to contrast with what's the worst thing you're capable of, right? Now bring it back to James Bond and uh, Loki. So one one archetype would be the trickster, right? And that's the good f- version is the the jester, the person who kind of makes people laugh and plays jokes, the class clown. But then the dark version of that is the the trickster, who's a little more devious kind of uh, prankster. Sinister, yeah. yeah. And maybe they both come out of kind of the same place, right? The class clown really just wants to be loved. And then, so that idea that James Bond is an archetype, right? Like he's he's very smart. He's suave. He's daring. It doesn't really matter who's playing him. James Bond is yeah. still James Bond, right? And it's the same throughout all the movies, right? So if you get into, he used to be a old looking guy, but now he's younger, but now we have more advanced technology and why doesn't this logic connect, right? It's like, no, he, sure. he was always <laughs> just the archetype, right? He was 007. He it, was Kvasir, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't matter who's playing him, right? And Kvasir is so important because, so Young says, and at some point, I haven't read all of this I just looked on Wikipedia for this this part, that there's 12 different personalities. It's fascinating that there's also the number 12 gods comes up so often with the Norse. 12 gods and goddesses. Yeah. yeah. So the idea is you, there's 12 aspects of your personality and you somehow balance them all, blend them together in a pot of spit, and you get incredible wisdom that knows everything, right? Kavasir could never be wrong. He was kind of an ideal, how brilliant he was, right? But that you get closer to that, the more you Blend the all your parts together, right? So that's bringing in Jung's idea of what are we trying to get out of this, right? When we're seeing Odin try to struggle with his masculine and feminine side, when we're seeing I don't know if like Thor and Loki are trying to balance something out. Uh, I think <laughs> I think I'd say Thor, Thor and Loki,
1: Loki are the yeah. opposites of each other, so there's right. probably some balance there.
0: When do you see Loki within yourself, right? When do you see Thor within yourself? Uh, would it be helpful if you saw more of Thor as, as though you express yourself? So there's my my Jungian piece for today, but. Sean, any your reactions, things like that would make sense to other people or questions you would have after hearing that.
1: Well, no, it sounds like an archetype is some something that you hold yourself accountable to, or it's like something, it's like a figure that you aspire to be, if that makes sense. And I know a previous episode you talked about the id ego yeah. and the superego. And I took from that the id is the survival instinct. The ego right. is how you see yourself. Yeah. And the superego might be considered like what you aspire to be, in this case, you might aspire to be Kavassir, you know James, Bonds, yeah. Thor, Loki, or Odin.
0: And that's what it is now. Um, we're, we're breaking Link. them all up. So within the id, there's several different parts within the superego.
1: No. Did I kind of oh, no. understand that? Or
0: No, exactly right. That, that all of these, as you get to 12 archetypes or however many there are, they're going to fit within those three categories of id, superego. And your ego is you trying to make sense of it, trying to find something coherent that helps you live a good life.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: Did you want to talk about the Poetic Edda or where, where do you feel like we're at? Uh,
1: really quick. I can I can do that. Uh, one second. I'm going to pull up the notes here. So as everybody knows, I get most of my stories from Norse mythology from the Poetic Edda or the prosetta. Edda. We discuss the prosetta, Edda, specifically the chapter Skald Skoppermal, and that's where we get the story of the meat of poetry. What's funny is that with the Poetic Edda, there is a few stanzas from one poem that discuss some of the events of the Mita poetry. The poem is called Havamal, which is very famous for people that follow Norse mythology because it's also called The Sayings of the High One. This is Odin speaking, and it's a very long poem. And a lot of people that look at Norse paganism today or may practice Norse paganism today will look at Havamal as their source of inspiration or look at Havamal as the way that they want to live their life. A few of the themes are moderation, individualism, and an overall skepticism of other people. So you, you have like a very sense of a reserved person, and you see this through the sayings of Odin. But because Odin is talking about himself, and because these poems are used to create a sense of world building in what the Norse may have believed a hundred or fifteen hundred years ago, he talks about many of his exploits. In this case, there's six stanzas on the Mita poetry. So I'm going to read them very quick. Um, it's the only mention of the Mita poetry in the poetic Edda. Most of what we know from Snorri Strolson in the prose Edda. But here we have stanzas 104 to 110 from Havamal. I visited an old giant and now I've returned. I didn't stay silent there. I spoke many words in support of my cause at Sutung's Hall. Gunloth, his daughter, Gave me a drink of his precious mead while I sat on a golden char. I would later give her a bad repayment, for trusting for her trusting mind, for her troubled mind. Giants dwelling were over and under me. I used ratty's tusk to burrow out and gnaw away at the rock. In this way, I got out with my head. I made good use of the disguise I used. Few things are too difficult for the wise. Now Odry-ur is rescued from the clutches of giants. I doubt I ha- could have ex- escaped Jotunheim if I hadn't used Gunloth, the good woman who rested in my arms. The next day, the Frost giants came to ask news about Odin in Odin's hall. They inquired about that evil-doer whether he was among the gods, or whether Suttung had killed them, killed him. I believe that Odin swore an oath to them, but who can trust Odin? He left Satung deceived in his own home and he left Gunloth weeping. So again, this is the only mention of some of the events of the Mita poetry in the Poetic Edda, And Odin speaks about some of the characters and Odrur, which is the cauldron that carried a part of the Mita poetry. But in these words, you get a sense that Odin felt it necessary to fuck over Setung, seduce Sutung's daughter, steal Sutung's mead, and, and like thus screw over Boggy Sutung's brother. but there's also a sense of him feeling bad about it because at the end he says, who could trust Odin and he's talking about it like it's Odin speaking. I thought this was very interesting as well, because if you read a lot of Havamal, he mentions this sense of moderation. And, you know, like you hear the phrase these days, everything is moderate, like, you know, as long um, as
0: like moderation in all things, that's the older way to say it.
1: Yeah. And so it's like, it's like, okay, to enjoy a glass of wine, don't drink five bottles, because you're going to sound like an idiot. And that's like something he talks about in Havamal. Also in Havamal, he talks about how a man who knows all is not a happy man. And so why this is very cool is because Odin has this lust for knowledge. And in the stories, including the Poetry. Odin learns what he wants to know, but he also finds out that he is going to die and he finds out when he's going to die. And that's something that we've discussed in previous episodes.
0: And that goes to the the archetype of the sage who actually knows all, right? What Odin is aspiring to is some kind of either a sorcerer or a sage that knows everything. Okay, aspire to be more wise, but do you want to actually be all the way where Odin is? He regretted it once he got there,
2: yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so like, I think it's always, it's, what I like about Norse mythology, especially like the journeys of Odin, is that he aspires to be better, which is something that we all aspire to be. But he gets there and he's like, well, it, this is not per, like as great as I thought it was going to be. I, I know when I'm going to die. There, there's no joy in this. That goes back to what we discussed earlier with the stories themselves or our own journeys being what's more important than the results of it. And so that's why I think Odin is such like a cool character because he like he's he's flawed. He's the chief deity of the Norse and he regrets like things that he's done. In this case he regret he he doesn't necessarily regret it cuz he understands why he did it, but he regrets fucking over this giant who is supposed to be a sworn enemy in Jotunheim Sutton, and seducing his daughter, Gunloth. And like also screwing over Situng's brother, Bagi, when Situng's parents were just murdered by these two dwarves. And so Odin knows like he stole so much of what was supposedly important to Situng's family, but he understood why he did it. Well, and, and it like, I
0: think, to that idea like, like moderation and balance, right? So you're saying that one of their highest values, especially for Odin, right? And we talked about his spear and how my my thing I read about how his keeping his word is so essential, right? But then but do you always keep your word or is there ever a higher cause and so then it makes you think about right that they're okay they have this um, mountain and they're hiding this source of incredible wisdom in there it's it's a little like the uh, the tree of knowledge in the garden of Eden right that there's a an apple that if you eat it you'll have knowledge oh but don't eat it leave it there right there's this mead that if you drink it you'll have incredible access to wisdom uh, knowledge poetry right but but leave it in a basement and never let anyone have it and Odin sees that that's not fair, right? That's not right. That's not just. It's because these dwarves and these giants right there, it goes back, they're on the lower level, right? They're not up at the level of the gods because they got this feud. They're going back and forth, right? over power. And Odin's like, we, he, he thinks he's the right ruler to be able to dispense it somehow fairly. And he leaves a few drops for the humans, right? Accidentally.
1: Yeah. And so I, I like I think that's very I think this is all very interesting. Odin explains like he he's Odin sort of satisfi- satisfies what he wants, but he's still not happy. You can almost like think about all this as like happiness comes from within. So anyway, I think this is like I the meat of poetry is a very long story. I'm glad that we like were able to talk about it because like you can understand a little bit about what may have been the purpose of the story in the first place. I don't know. Did you have anything else that you wanted to? to I, I just or?
0: really like the poetic version of how o- Odin expresses how conflicted he is in this decision, right? And and uh, no, so the details within the poetry, right? Like Sturlson's is almost the like cliff notes, but then he makes it coherent because the poems are kind of all over the place. You really would have to be quite a scholar of the poems to know how they all make sense. Reading the prose Edda is a little easier than the poetic, but there's such great detail, yeah, that's in the poetic, yeah.
1: It, it is. And like, I think the Poetic Edda is like a much cooler read. Um, but a lot of it, like if we didn't have the Prosetta.
0: Yeah. But out of, but out of context, the Poetic Edda would be hard to get into. Right. I can see that like, being true too. Yeah.
1: yeah. You would know about like Odin. That's you right. would know about like some of the world because of co- Odin, like conversations between Odin and somebody else. But like Snorri, like gives us a very broad view that gives us a probability. Like, I guess that gives us like an idea of what probably was thought of Yeah, in a Norse. in like. When the Norse religion was practiced, but he like it, given that he does do it through a, a Christian like lens, yeah, yeah. But it probably what there's probably some truth there in what he's saying. So I think with like a story like the Mead of Poetry, which barely shows up in the Poetic Edda, we wouldn't think anything of it. We would just be like oh, so Gunlag and Sutan were random like were random people. We have no idea what they were. But then if you like read the Mead of Poetry in Snorri's version or like modern day Neil Gaiman's version, you know everything about it.
0: Good. All right, Sean. Good to call it here. I don't yeah. think I had anything. I don't think I had anything funny for the end. I'm going to record a song to put it at the
2: end, but that's all. Yeah.
1: If we have, I was going to say, if we have a song, we can uh, cue the song right now. Good. Cool. Hey, Bye, everyone.
2: I've been a wild rover for many a year, and I've spent all my money on whiskey and beer. But now I'm returning with the golden great store. And never will I play the Wild Rover no more Yes, it's no, nay, never No, nay, never, no more Will I play the Wild Rover no, never, no more I'll return to my parents, confess what I've done And ask them to pardon their prodigal son And when they have done so as oft times before Well, never will I play thee wild rover no more Yes, it's no, nay, never No, nay, never, no more Will I play
1: Well, why did anybody trust these dwarves in the first place? Why did these two giants decide to
0: like- If Kvasir was so smart, why did he go in the house with- Yeah, exactly.
1: Kavassier gets killed by these two asshole dwarves and these two giants decide to go to sea with these two asshole dwarves and they're too stupid. And I'm like, well, guys, you're idiots. Stop following these random dwarves.